It's up to you. I don't know whether you've gotten a chance to listen to some of the stuff I dropped. I've got like a Pop Matters sheet that goes on half a mile. I was thinking, depending on whether you've got things to say about the things I've got things to say about, whether we just break it out as like a half-hour bonus episode. We'll just see. We'll see how you feel, how your time's doing, what your energy level is, what mine is. But, wow, some stuff has come across the board. So are you ready for Pop Matters, my friend? I am. Okay. He, he pauses just long enough for me to wonder, has he left the room? Has he just turned off Skype? We don't know. He's tired of this shit. Yeah, anyway, right uh, what, what's on your plate, my friend? So, apropos of recent events, I queued up Funkadelic. Do you know Funkadelic? Uh, Do you like Funkadelic? You better. You better. There's there's no excuse yeah. for not liking Funkadelic. I like funk. I do. And, and I gotta admit, you know, I like funk from the earlier 70s, maybe not by such white people. I, you know, I, I like it. I like it. Maybe Brecker Brothers is not my favorite brand. But anyway, I, lo- I, like, I like some funk. So which Funkadelic did you listen to? Duh. I mean, there's only one album to listen to at this time, which would be America Eats Its Young. young. No shit. Oh, my God. I mean, come on. That is the album. That is the soundtrack for America right now. Psychedelic soul, funk, funk rock, whatever you want to call it. It's a look, an album with, first of all, Bootsy Collins on bass, George Clinton on vocals. What else do you need? That's an album right there. That's an album. That's it, right? But there's a whole bunch of other really fine players here. Huge number of players. There's a cast of gazillions. But honestly, my right now in my current soundtrack, what I what I'm playing a lot is if you don't like the effects, don't produce the cause. Yeah. Drop the mic. Boom. You know? A little physics for you, bitches. Yeah. Little physics for you, bitches. If you don't like the effects, don't produce the cause. And then when I feel sad, I listen to uh, everybody is going to make it this time. So and then when I feel funky, I listen to Loose Booty. So, And some of the other <laughs> titles of songs on this album, you really can't say on a family podcast. This is a family podcast? You know, we do have a language warning because we use a lot of language, but we still probably ought to skip some of those titles. So, Yeah, I'm going to skip some of the titles. Keep our naughtiness anyway. in, in manageable bounds, yeah. Jones of his own, he did 
So I do, I like, uh, I like this album a whole bunch. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this is, this is funk from the Donald Byrd era, but with, you know, some politics in it and, uh, yeah, it's good stuff. I like it a whole bunch. Um, I hope you like it. I think it's great. It, I just happened to queue it up before we decided to do this podcast. And then, um, and then you suggested street lady. And so I had those two paired for a while. I'm like, this works. These two things go together well. I'm very happy with this randomness here. This has worked out well. You threw some stuff at me that has been in the rotation, so I haven't gotten through. You've thrown at me the uh, the box set, A New Career in a New Town, the Bowie live singles and stuff, and I've just started going through those, and holy shit, are they good. A lot of good stuff on there. Uh, I've only gotten through a couple of them so far, but man, oh man, that's... That's some great stuff. What I found myself surprisingly pleased by, like more than I can even explain, is you sent me uh, Rodrigo y Gabriela's Metavolution. Which is like, like new flamenco. This just fucking scratched an itch. I love this fucking album. It's just guitar. It comes up as rock on iTunes, but that is just completely wrong. There's a lot of sort of new age flamenco. Right, like, two guitars. Right, yeah. Right, you know, Strunz and Farah are a good example. Um, of an, early, an earlier example of this, um, mostly people think of people like the Gypsy Kings when they think of like you know flamenco, new agey shit. They're kind of a crossover pop version of it. These guys are more the authentic, real deal. I actually am sort of deep into this music, and I'd never heard of these guys. And so when this arrived, I was like, oh, oh, hell yes, really, really liked this. Just the the first cut, I was like, oh, what the fuck? I need everything these guys have ever done. I was just immediately just loved it and so uh i am a total... what did you think of the last cut because the, the way i heard about them was they do a cover of pink floyd's echoes from the album right. metal which lasts a whole album side uh, pink floyd's version is 23 minutes and their version is like 18 Well, they do it all with no vocals and on on guitars. It's quite a trick. I would have to one. I would have to one care enough about Pink Floyd to have listened <laughs> closely enough to metal 
to know that that's what they're doing. I just liked it. I just thought this is fucking awesome. Uh, I preferred the shorter cuts, that long cut, the 18 minute cut. I was like, okay, this is good. Now that I know that it's a cover of Pink Floyd, I guess I can go ahead and dispense with it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just I'm all in on these guys. I'll I'll pick up anything by them. They're they're an insta buy. If I see something by them, used or wherever, I'll grab it because this like from the first chords, I was like, oh hell yes. Um, so I had a really strong positive reaction to this. They were like on my wish list a year and a half, but I heard of that, and then it was weird. I realized that somehow I bought metal years ago as a cd reissue but didn't get it ripped on my server it's like why is this not here i don't know so i dug that up and listened to it again it's it's the album that pre pre is right before dark side of the moon and in some ways it's maybe it's not as accomplished but maybe more likable and in terms of a long suite you know metal's one of their more successful you know drugged out hippie things but somehow i ran across the fact that these guys covered them, listened to them on Spotify, thought it was pretty cool, put it on the wish list, and then people kept skipping it because they never heard of them. Uh, yeah, I'm not as much into flamenco as you are. I've got another album of like two guitarists in roughly that style that's more classical angled. And I, you know, I like it, like them both. Um, but yeah, this is, it's just a really cool record. They're both very accomplished and it's, you know, if you know the outlines of the, of the original they're covering in that last track, it's fascinating to hear them translate that into their style uh, and kind of, you know, do a lot of the studio wankery that Floyd was famous for with guitars. Anyway, it's just, yeah, it's a cool record. So I, I've, I've been enjoying that one. Yeah, I, like I said, uh, that, you know, I, I this doesn't happen very often, but uh, occasionally I'll hear something and I'll immediately go, not only do I like this, I love this, and I, I like this kind of music a whole bunch anyway. I mean, I just really, I, I've got a, I wouldn't say a huge collection, but, you know, I mean, I know who Jesse Cook is, I know who Chris Fierce is, and, you know, I know who a bunch of these players are, and I, I have several of their albums, and I, you know, I like this stuff just in general. Um, and like okay, I said, the first so couple of chords, yeah. and the thing is, you know, I can sort of hum along to this, and I, it, it's, it, it's very repetitive, it reminds me of certain kinds of jazz because when I hear certain kinds of bebop, once they lay down the groove, you know, I'll start whistling solos to it or humming solos over the groove. And this is very much like that. And I was humming along to this and, you know, kind of improvising solos. The first listen through, you know, I was like, Oh man, this is just in my sweet spot. So all in on these guys, I'll, I'll listen to anything by them. And and one of them, like, just, you know, one of them is a gal, but yeah. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, sorry. No, yeah. One of the players is is a woman and one is a man, and they're both very, very good. Uh, I know. I didn't know. Oh, there it is. Gabriela Quintero. So, yeah, woman. I thought those were last names. I had no idea. Those are their first names. And I'm glad you said those names instead of me. Rodrigo y Gabriela. (laughs) Me gusta, me gusta mucho Rodrigo y Gabriela. I like this shit a whole bunch. Yeah. Well, it's, it's pretty cool. That's what I've been listening to, that stuff. So thank you for turning me on to that. I will absolutely look for that uh, more in the future. Look, 
You said you got a lot, so I'll just drop the mic and listen for a while. Tell me what you got. Well, no, try to try to stay stay in if you can, because uh, Lord knows I'm I'm low energy tonight. But yeah, so the, the Bowie box, I got you. It's weird. Uh, this box was super controversial because I, I don't know about the mastering job. I, I haven't compared it. I have some of the earlier releases of some of these albums, so I have to go and look at them. It may be a little bit more compressed. But apparently on the album Heroes, which is one of the few Bowie albums I did not have, there's some kind of dropout during that the, the title track. It just got quieter, whether it was a tape flaw or something. And I don't know whether the version I've got fixed that or I just haven't noticed it. In general, during Heroes, I kind of wish Bowie was quieter. You know, I, it's not my favorite <laughs> Bowie track because he's super over-emoting on it. And, you know, listening to that record was so weird because it was the one I have not had for years. I've had Lodger, which is there's a so-called Berlin trilogy um, right. where he's, you know, he gets completely strung out in cocaine. According to him, he doesn't remember recording Station to Station, which is one of his better records. But he's like, he was that drugged out. He was flirting with fascism and he believed in witchcraft. You know, he was just he was really strung out. And so he cleaned himself up with who else? Iggy Pop. Who else do you want to have your shotgun and as you're cleaning yourself up? And made the sequence of records low, which I've always thought is one of his masterpieces. I don't know. I just like that record a lot. It's very alienating and very odd, but it just seems to hang together. And he's collaborating with Brian Eno. Then he does Heroes, and then he does Lodger. And then the next album is Scary Monsters, which is not considered part of the, you know, it's after that. And then it's Let's Dance. And he goes pop. And then, you know, most people argue that after Let's Dance, he just had a complete aesthetic collapse that went on for 10 years or more. I mean, just, you know, even everything he tried was either successful or highly successful. And then he just hit a wall. I've always loved Lodger and Scary Monsters. This box includes a completely remixed version of Lodger. So they're, all the albums are remastered, but they include one where the, the producer, bass player, Tony Visconti, remixed it. Just He said they didn't have time. They didn't have the right equipment at the time. He went in and did it. He played some tracks, according to him, to Bowie. Bowie loved them. Then, of course, Bowie went to the great beyond. Fantastic boy should turn to a rojan and we never get old. Remember it's true, dignity is valuable, but our lives are valuable too. You know, I've listened to them. They're clearly different. I don't know that I've decided whether I like them better or not, but it's kind of cool to hear them. And that's an album that a lot of people don't know as well. You know, boy, Heroes really, it's funny. After Low, Heroes just sounds divided. Like Bowie's, he's still doing some of these instrumentals with Eno, but they're much more tuneful and basic and... The, the songs on the album are much more like pop songs. It's like he's he's tried low. Low is a, a very specific thing. 
and now he's he's trying to move somewhere else. It sounds extremely transitional to me. I think a lot of people like Heroes Best because that song is the most charismatic or best-known tune from the whole trilogy. To me, it's kind of the most awkward stitched together of the album, so there's some neat moments on it. And of course, when Bowie's screaming the second half of Heroes, I don't know. I mean, I get it. I get it. He just he, he's over emoting for my taste. I mean, you know, it's whatever. I, I get that people find it thrilling. And then they did a he had an album called Live at that time. I think it's Live. I can't remember what it's called. And Stage, maybe it's Stage. And so there was a two disc version of it, and then they expanded it. And for some reason, this box set they give you the original one in case you can't program your CD player or your streamer, and then they give you the expanded version on two more discs. And he's playing all the songs of that era, and there's a lot of Ziggy Stardust. It's pretty good. Adrian Ballou's in that band. You get a little elephantine wankery on the solos, but there are times I wish I, I, I could do with a little bit more of his stunt guitar. He's there, and boy, it, it was interesting because most pop and rock live albums don't have a reason to exist. It's weird. I mean, they recreate some of the instrumentals off low, which is like, what the fuck? You know, this is, can you imagine doing those live? I mean, what's the point of that? But boy, when Bowie is singing, you can hear him making decisions on every note. He's thinking through the way he wants to deliver these lines, and they are differently inflected. Not necessarily radically different, but it's like listening to a jazz singer in the sense that he is he's trying to represent what he's doing and he's thinking about it. He doesn't, you know, it's weird. Is Bowie a great singer? Is he a mediocre singer? It's not a pretty voice. He apparently could nail some of his vocal takes in one try. So he's not, you know, he's got some talent. He's not somebody that had to be auto tuned and stitched together. But, you know, no one put him in an opera. But he's he is in that sense more than I ever realized a thoughtful singer. I don't know that I'm gonna listen to to stage much. I you know it's just live Bowie is it's weird. It's not as it's not his thing exactly. And then there's an album of just outtakes and singles, and that includes Under Pressure and that duet he did with Bing Crosby. You remember that one? <laughs> Gotta love it. Love that. <laughs> and you know so it's just Oz, and then a bunch of. Bertolt Brecht Viles and Kurt Vile songs. I don't know. Just some weird EP, and I haven't listened to that one yet. And he does the Alabama song, and he does and some alternate versions of some of the tunes off his albums from that period. Um, so those are kind of the big additions. And then there are all remastered versions of, of, of the albums of that era. So I've not listened to the remastered Scary uh, Monsters or, or Low, but, um, you know, I'll just compare them and see if I like them better or whether they're too compressed. But, you know, it's this weird thing where during the COVID crisis, I've had a lot of stress. I've had a lot of, you know, bad things in my personal life. But financially, we've done fine. We got stimulus checks. We didn't stop working. Elantra, Hyundai decided they, they owed us 300 bucks because they lied about their miles per gallon, which they did. So that money came through after God. I mean, I'm sure that lawsuit was in the courts five years or something. And so it's like, well, what do you spend this money? You've got to buy records. Otherwise, the economy will grind to a halt. So what else can I do? It's really my <laughs> obligation, you know. <laughs> got to get it circulating again. 
Uh, so I, you know, I got this thing. I, I think it was like I got an unexpected bonus at work. They're like, oh, we're giving you an extra week's salary because you're nice. So like, okay, I guess I'll get the Bowie box set because it's gotten pretty cheap. But yeah, a lot of people were not fond of it. They've done box sets of each era. So going, you know, the Ziggy Stardust era and then the, the cocaine era and then this era. And they've come out with one of what comes after this. I'm just trying to imagine, do you really want to go there? Do you really want, you know, the box set that has tonight in it? I guess it stops right before Tin Machine. But is that soon enough? Yeah, there are people who love that. There are people who love that shit. You know, I've never been a big Tin Machine fan. But yeah, you know, there are people who well, worship is, that era of him. Yeah, well, this is like right before. So it's like, you know, Let's Dance, Never Let Me Down. And tonight, which, yeah, I mean, right after Let's Dance, which I think is sometimes dismissed too quickly. I mean, there's four weeks tracks on it, but there are five great tracks. You know, it's not a bad batting record. Yeah. After that, it's like, what the fuck is going on? It's just like he lost his touch for a while. And, you know, the, the later stuff, I think, is supposed to be better. But obviously, Black Star is this towering masterpiece that he releases right before he dies. I mean, it's just an amazing fucking record. But there's a desert there. And yeah, yep. I, but I guess if you're really into Bowie, you know, you want every bit. And so it's like, yeah, you want his singles from Lambrinth, you know, when he's in, in the makeup and he's with the Muppets. <laughs> we got him. We got him, you know. Yeah, it, it's just he's, you know, once he was gone, they, they've, they've strip mined him almost as thoroughly as Miles Davis. But, you know, I'm, I'm still learning from that. I want to listen to it, listen to it some more. Another thing I did was I went back and dubbed a couple LPs that I not dubbed yet. So you remember Boys and Girls by Brian Ferry? Of course I do. I, I have a CD copy. Yes. And I later seemed to find one, but I thought somehow it wasn't on my server that it turned up again. So anyway, I went there and, and I dubbed that. And then I realized I never dubbed Suzanne Vega's debut album <laughs> called Simply <laughs> Suzanne Vega. It's There's not both. called simply Suzanne Vega. It's called Suzanne. Oh, Vega. Suzanne Vega. Okay, you're right. You're right. It should have been called simply Suzanne <laughs> Vega. It's like it's like a butter substitute. That you know? that album has two good songs on it and a bunch of mediocrity. But the two good songs are like wow, you know, wow. Yeah, I guess it was it was the one I, I remember being at a party as like right out of college or maybe in college where this woman was ranting a couple years older than us. Oh, she does a steal from Joni Mitchell. That's so Suzanne not Vega true. was. It's not. I mean, she was the it folky of our era, basically the mid eighties. And so these albums both come out in 1985. Do you know what they have in common? Fuck all. No, both of them. And it must've been a thing that 1985 art directors thought was cool. Both of them. The back is upside down compared to the front of the LP. <laughs> I don't know why uh-huh. people thought this was cool, but yeah, both boys and girls and Suzanne Vega, simply Suzanne Vega, it's like, okay, I guess this never happened before or after, but for one year, people thought, let's do this. Let's flip around the back. You know, it's like, anyway, so yeah, the one is a very, I mean, Suzanne Vega, I've always thought what she did was, you know, 
kind of bring a rock star cool and distance to the folky genre. You know, she's got that very affectless, vibratoless singing voice, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to a genre that wasn't necessarily cool. And then, you know, we've talked about Brian Ferry before, right? It's, it's, it was surprisingly perky. You know, I, I guess Ferry, as he goes along and gets older, his albums get more and more baroque and, and chill. And, but, but Boys and Girls is, is not exactly Roxy Music's debut, but it's, it's got a little more pep in its step than I remembered. And I, you know, I quite like them both. It's pre-disco, but you can, it, it's, you can see disco from there, you know. Or it's post-disco. Oh, really? Post-disco, post yeah. Yeah, it's post-disco, but you can still see disco from it. It's got some great cuts. I, I love Boys and Girls. I think Slave to Love is a great song. I've always liked that song. And uh, there's a handful of other good songs on there that I that I think uh, don't stop, don't don't stop the dance. I think that's a good song. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I like Boys and Girls a lot. Even if I am in love with you, all this to say would speak to you. Observe the blood, the rose tattoo of the fingerprint on me from you. Other evidence has shown that you and I are still alone. We skirt around the danger zone and don't talk about it later. Marlena watches from the wall, her mocking smile says it all as she records the rise and fall of every soldier passing. The only soldier now is me I'm fighting things I cannot see I think it's called my destiny That I am changing Marlena um, The Suzanne Vega debut was ubiquitous when we were in college. I mean, fucking everybody had it. That came out when we were freshmen or sophomores. Listening to it again, I'm I, I just reminded of uh, how utterly great Two of the songs on that album, I think two of the songs are stunning. Um, I've always thought Cracking is just a brilliant song. Um, and it's got her affectless, thin yeah. alto over really spiky, not folk guitar, um, which I've always liked. I just love the shit out of that song. I've never got, when I, when I, when, you know, you sent it to me and I started, I played it, I'm like, oh yeah, this. I forgot how much I love this song. Like, I just adore this song. And then the rest of it's kind of like, you know, her, her way with the lyric is not very good at this point. She takes a while to, to, to become lyrically worthy of your attention. Um, but uh, Marlena on the Wall, I think, is a terrific, terrific song. Um, but then there's, you know, just utter bathos on the album. I mean, the, the Knight and the Soldier is horrible, or whatever that's called, <laughs> The Knight and the Queen. Just yeah. a terrible song. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, neighborhood girls. Some people like it. I think it's really stupid. I mean, there's just a lot of bad writing on that album. But then there's two songs that for me are just as good as anything she ever did. And then she just goes into a trough. I think until like 99 degrees, you know, to the later stuff, and you're like, uh, oh, okay, this is good. Like these are some really sharp lyrics. I think she gets much better. Yeah, that, that's my, you know, uh, the second album she did had Luca, which was his huge hit, but I thought it was actually weaker than AB. And, and Tom's then, Diner! Let's not forget the immortal Tom's Diner. <laughs> yes, oh yeah, dot, dot, dot. 
I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. Well, it was that kind of almost bonaive, effectless, you know. It just it was a thing, and um, the ninety nine point nine that I think is the first album where I was introduced to the idea of compression because it was a CD that I had that was twice as fucking loud as anything else I owned at that time. I was like, why is this yeah. album so loud? You know, but it's probably my favorite of hers. And then I, you know, I listened to one or two others and they didn't grab me, but she's still around. But but yeah, she was really I like, a- uh, Nine Objects of Desire. Yeah, she was the it girl back then, and like I said, that album was ubiquitous uh you know i know i had a copy back in the day but uh yeah i to me the the title or sorry the opener uh cracking just i've never that song slayed me the first time i heard it and you sent me this dub and so i listened to it and as soon as i mean i just had forgotten all the songs and as soon as i heard the opening chords of that guitar it's like oh yeah this i love this song yeah that was definitely a trip down memory lane i had not you know i not listened to that one for years so that was cool to do You know, I've been cleaning up my parents' house, and a lot of the LPs are going to go to Goodwill, but some came home. And one thing they had was a six-LP set of Dr. Demento's greatest novelty records. If you can imagine, six LPs. And, you know, I think the biggest problem with it is not Dr. Demento's greatest novelty songs. It's his greatest novelty records. So at times he'll include tracks. It's just like Cheech and Chong doing some skit for five minutes. And I just, that doesn't, that doesn't age well. You know, the, the spoken word ones or whatever. Wow. Uh, some of them are just hard to take. But I did find out that, you know, do you remember Short People by Randy Newman? Oh yeah. Anyway, you know, listen to them like, this is kind of a banger. I know that he was using the Eagles yeah. on this record, but you know, it's like, Man, those piano chords, they, they, they kind of got me moving there. You know, it's, it's, it's this, you know, very simple song, this mocking the idea of racism and, you know, by, by, you know, making fun of a group that you think you can possibly discriminate against. People just happen to be short. And of course, people took it literally that he just didn't like short people. So that worked really well for him. It's got a couple weird owl tracks, but they're mainly like, you know, weird, weird owl as a young man in the bathroom with his accordion, you know, kind of, which I don't know was necessarily <laughs> Weird Al's greatest period. Um, and just, it, you know, it goes 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and then a Christmas album. And the Christmas, I don't know, especially, I just feel like he, you know, the grandma got run over the red, by the reindeer, but a couple of the tracks there, I'm like, dude, there's got to be something better. It, it's weird. I think he's torn between historical interest, influence, and actual listenability. Kind of wish he went for listenability, but it turns out the song Dead Puppies Aren't Much Fun 
another banger. I mean, I, have you ever heard Dead Puppies? <laughs> you know, I just, no, no, I oh my God, it's just ridiculous, you know, disgusting, ridiculous saying this guy's kind of crooning it. It's just really ridiculous. But as it goes, it just builds and builds. And the guy is not a good singer, but he can sing. I mean, his, you know, it's, he's capable of singing many notes. And then towards the end, it's just like crescendoing. And there's this chorus about how dead puppies aren't fun. And then it ends with this thunderous church organ. And it's like, yes, this is great. What a great celebration of the fact that dead puppies aren't fun. And Dementia's like, look, people were offended, but, you know, are you really going to disagree with this? Are you going to say they are fun? Because then you're the real problem. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, quite a troll. You know, I, I can't decide. Cool. I've got them on the server, but am I going to remove them? There's there's a great, you know, uh, song about this this woman singing about the sailor in his dinghy. And I will say it's like, OK, that's what I want. I don't want this song about you just want to get in my pants. I want the dinghy song. Other sailors take the girls canoeing. It's an old, old Navy technique. But Davy gets more girlies with his dinghy. And what is more, it never springs a leak. Every time it rains, his little dinghy gets wet. But Davy says it's waterproof so he doesn't fret. The cutest little dinghy in the Navy. Heave ho, heave ho. Because it is like 15 times dirtier than, you know, uh, the song we're talking about by Jasmine Horn. And yet it never says anything that is quote unquote blue at all. It's just, oh, that's the metaphor. Oh, my God. This whole song is. A, oh, OK. It's just so well done. Uh, you know, th- so there's a few that are actually interesting musically. And then some that you're just like, why, why, why? And I'll tell you, taping six of those was, was an effort. If you're lucky, I'll send them to you. If you're really lucky, I won't. I can't decide. I'm like, do I send them to my siblings as like a memento over our home life? Do you want all six volumes of Dr. Demento? I just can't decide. <laughs> Let's see. So the final thing is, the final dub I did was the Scientist's album Weird Love. And that was something I had in college. Mm. And the main thing I liked back then was a cover of You Only Live Twice, which is fine. Oh, yeah. That's a great cover. It is. And I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. It starts with these dissonant guitar. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, and, and it. You know, listening to the rest of it, I'm like, okay, you guys are, they're Australian, they were a punk band, they were, you know, one of these bands that never quite made it big. And I think this is kind of roughly a compilation album for the U.S. market, I think that's what it really was. But listening to it, I'm like, you're kind of a more monochromatic, less funny cramps, you know? It's yeah, not... I'd not, say that's fair. Not quite as much fun or as good or as inventive as they are not quite as many textures 
And, you know, the cover is fantastic, but the original's not quite there. So, you know, I, I, I've got it. I, I won't listen to it much. I mean, I love You Only Live Twice. It's just, it's such a great campy song and they knock it out of the park. But it's the juxtaposition of, was that Nancy Sinatra? I, God, whoever, I think it was. Well, I mean, in other words, who sang You Only Live Twice for the Bond film. Uh, oh, I'm not sure. Isn't it? It's Nancy Sinatra or Lulu? Nancy Sinatra. So yeah, Nancy Sinatra did it. You know, it was meant for someone of her reasonably limited voice, pleasant, melodious voice. And then when they punk it up, it's awesome. Yeah, that's that's kind of the scientist's great contribution to the world as far as I'm concerned, which is not bad. Not every group had even that. Hello and welcome to the second part of this Frankenstein Together podcast. I'm going to call it Pat's Vinyl Corner. Our apologies for putting out this uh, odd little uh, extra bonus podcast, but really it was necessary for my sanity during the summer to have kind of a buffer, and we'd gotten to the point where we didn't have a lot in the chamber, as it were. Uh, you know, we're keeping about two weeks ahead of schedule, and that's about as much time as it takes to edit one of these things. So I thought it was necessary to kind of squeeze an extra one out. So I hope you enjoyed this content. If you're not interested in vinyl, of course, just please skip it, and uh, we will resume our normal podcasting next time. So I thought I'd talk about three topics briefly. Uh, the first is Blue Note's ongoing vinyl reissue programs. I've talked about these rather extensively and all about jazz, and I'm not really going to offer a lot new here that's not in those articles. So you can look those up if you want a little bit more in-depth in print. Uh, I'll just do it verbally here. And then I'm going to talk briefly about a couple large box sets. So Blue Note fascinates me right now. It is in the middle of a almost unprecedented push to release really high quality vinyl. Just recently, it was not doing that. Its 75th anniversary program released dozens of LPs into the wild and they just weren't very good. Quality control was mediocre, and they were based on digital sources. And I think it was a Speak Like a Child by Herbie Hancock, which is one of my favorite records of his. The version I got was just so noisy and so disappointing that I stopped buying any of those. They really turned their fortunes around. Don was 
first got in touch with uh, a man named Harley, who's a, a master engineer, and uh, suggested that he start what was named the Tone Poet series, which is his nickname for this guy. And these were kind of luxury issues of Blue Note kind of obscurities. 180 gram vinyl, all analog sources, mostly gatefold covers, heavy duty cardboard. You know, the selections on this series were kind of odd, but overall the executions have been excellent. I've gotten at least half a dozen, and I'd say the only disappointments were that the Gil Evans Old Bottles New Wine was a bit noisy, and also just exposed the fact that I think that master tape didn't stand up to scrutiny very well. And there's a couple spots on Grant Green's Nigeria that were, were noisy on side two. But really, other than that, the quality control has been excellent, and the sound's been fantastic. So I've really enjoyed those. Uh, they started extremely strong. I, I, you know, I cannot recommend enough that you get Wayne Shorter's Etc. That's a fantastic album. And uh, Chick Corea's Now He Sings, Now He Sobs, also an excellent record. And that's how they started that series off, and they're still two of the highlights for me. So then, rather surprisingly, with this series still underway, Blue Note announced the 80th anniversary LP issues. And these are also all analog heavyweight pressings, the difference being that the jackets are much lighter cardboard, and uh, for a while, the inner envelopes were paper. People complained about this bitterly, even though it's not very expensive to get your own plastic-lined envelopes. And the most recent ones I've picked up actually now have plastic-lined envelopes, so apparently someone was listening. Yeah, this series, I don't think I've gotten a single example of it that's had problems with noise. And the sound is largely fantastic. Blue Note, from time to time, their stores had pretty substantial sales. Uh, twice, I've run into 30% off sales. And at that point, uh, the Tone Poets, which listed $35 a piece, but typically on Amazon are around $27 it reasonable and the $25 a piece 80th anniversaries go down to really even with tax and shipping under 20 each and for all analog heavyweight pressings new records that's an excellent price if you go back and look at the end of the analog dominance the end of the LP's reign towards the beginning of the 80s uh, you were paying more than that taking into account inflation uh, than you're paying now for what was often a vastly inferior product. So the pricing really is is amazingly reasonable. And I think it's because this large corporation, at least for the time being, is behind this project. And a 
apparently they believe they've got the scale necessary to be able to afford putting these out. Now, all that said, I just don't know how much longer this is going to go on. Obviously, if anything happens to Don Was, my guess is they're going to pull the plug immediately. I don't see how they're making money at this, given that Amazon and the store themselves, a the Blue Note store, discounts these heavily at times. I, I just don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they're able to continue doing this. Presumably, it's they've got the corporate reach and muscle to be able to, to, to you know, make these excellent productions uh, cheaper than the average small run audiophile label could. But they are kind of amazing. And if you're into good sound, I have found that there is value added to what, you know, often are very good but second rank Blue Note productions. I mean, for the most part, they aren't releasing the Stone classics. It's not made in voyage by herbie hancock it's a lesser known stuff you know it's not blue train it's not the best known sessions you know it's not the sidewinder by lee morgan it's the rump roller so there's that aspect to it and you know that's a little disappointing i i I feel like what happened was they put a lot of the obvious suspects out in the 75th anniversary edition and then decided well we don't want to duplicate that, or at least not do that very much, so we're going to release lesser-known things. But the problem is the 75th anniversary section sucked. Those selections sucked in terms of pressings, and then these new ones are excellent. So, you know, I kind of wish they put out an 80th anniversary Maiden Voyage, but but I don't think they're going to do that. I just don't know what the next step's going to be, and I would not be shocked if this ends, given that the quality is really just startlingly good, given the price. And my sense is there wouldn't be so many sales if they were selling out of these things easily. So anyway, I'd say get those while you can. The last 30% sale tempted me into getting a five of the last issues. None of them are all that well-known. I got Jackie McLean's Fickle Sonnets, Dexter Gordon's A Swingin' Affair, which is a session he cut uh, roughly the same time as Go, which is one of his best-known sessions, Andrew Hill's Smokestack, Lee Morgan's Rump Roller, and Kenny Dorham's Trumpet Toccata. And, uh, you know, these are, again, they're not the best-known releases by these artists. I think the Rump Roller especially has suffered because the title is so blatantly trying to copy the Sidewinder, both in its just nomenclature, it sounds like a duplicate of it, and the music itself, which is another bogaloo that is just not as quite as memorable as the Sidewinder. That said, it's an excellent select, um, it's an excellent session with Joe Henderson on it, Billy Higgins on drums. It's it's quite good. It is not the best thing Lee Morgan ever did, but I'll tell you when you're listening in this really crisp, vivid, immediate analog sound, it's startlingly good. And there is something about that that compels me, at least as a listener, that sometimes you know. And I don't know. Again, I I think part of it is my analog rig costs more than my digital rig. I spent more on the needle on my turntable or roughly as much as I did on my CD player. So maybe that's it. Maybe some of it's self-hypnosis, but I got to admit, I tend to put things on and often I read or something. And my experience with these best of these pressings has been that they've kind of pulled me out of what I was doing and riveted my attention. I, I haven't been sitting there hoping that a light would shine on me and revelation would come. I've kind of just put them on, maybe hoping for the best. I'm not saying there's not some back of my mind self-hypnosis going on, but I think I'm pretty good at ignoring my surroundings until forced not to. And it's like, yeah, several times listening to these, I've just been kind of startled by how good they sound. 
Poet series, I picked up one of the rare recent releases that was given this treatment, Lonnie Smith's All in My Mind. Lonnie is a long-lived organ player. This is an organ trio date, first released in 2018. And uh, the vinyl version of it, obviously not based on an analog source because, you know, largely recordings are not made to analog tape anymore. And, uh, you know, it sounds excellent. I, it doesn't quite have that startling there-ness. And I, again, that's the best I can say. And again, I'm not trying to sell people on saying, you must destroy your CDs. You cannot listen to streaming. You can, whatever, you know, whatever works. Again, some of this may be self-hypnosis. I find LPs pretty compelling, but I enjoy CDs. I enjoy radio. I enjoy streaming, you know, whatever. The music is the most important thing. So this is maybe not quite as startling. The other thing to think about is that you know, Lonnie Smith is an illustration where his CD had seven tracks and the LP has five. And I'd say that largely LP producers now, because they have this niche audience that's fairly fastidious and is very focused on quality of sound, tend to take extreme measures to make the medium sound as good as it can. And a problem with vinyl is, is that the closer you get to the label, the shorter the, the path the needle is making as the record rotates at 33 and a third RPM. It covers a hell of a lot more ground at 33 and a third RPM at the edge of the record where it's 12 inches in diameter than it does near the label. And so there the quality of the sound is not as good. Also, there's issues with the geometry of a tone arm as to whether it's where its best moment is closest thing to being actually tracing at the same angle as the cutting head was on the LP. There's only a couple of places where the, t the tone arm is the needle because it's swinging across the record as opposed to, you know, moving it across it horizontally in a perfect line. And so those things combine to make the, the end of a record sometimes sound a little bit worse than the beginning. And on top of that, you know, the LP is a medium that's most comfortable with, roughly speaking, 20 minutes. There are tons of classical LPs that go 30 minutes and over, and some of them sound pretty good. But the more music you put on a side of vinyl, the more you're having to find a way to compress it into that space and get that information in a smaller area. And so they cut two songs off of his album. And, I, you know, I'm looking at thinking, well, I understand the timings are a bit awkward. I think they might have been able to fit another one on there. I love it as a five song set. I think it's, it, it is a, it's one that has that feeling of a classic blue note of a lot of flow. Uh, tells a good story. Uh, moods are created in each of the tunes and are sustained. And, you know, there's a memorable cover of 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover that just really works well in this format. And everybody seems to be on their A game. That said, it is organ jazz. If you hate organs, you know, don't get it. Because this is it's not Jimmy Smith pounding you into submission, but it's Lonnie Smith who occasionally will, you know, play with his organ a bit. But you know, it's more musical overall, I think, but, you know, it's, it's organ jazz. It's not it's not anything else, so you have to go in there with that expectation. But as I said, you know, it's maybe slightly less magic. You know, they've also given this treatment to Joe Henderson's Joe Henderson's State of the Tenor Volumes 1 and 2. They released two first, 
and they released one on the 75th anniversary series, and that's one that sounds okay. And of course, this is a record from the 80s, so it's digitally recorded. Uh, I cannot decide. I have to go back and see if I think it's worth spending yet more money to get the Tone Poet version of Volume 1. I'm not sure that with those sources I can tell the difference enough, you know, with my ears and my equipment and my level of understanding to, to make that worthwhile investment. But for the most part, the, the, the Tone Poet series is focused on things from the analog age, as has the 80th anniversary series. And, you know, I've listened to, I don't think a single, as I said before, 80th anniversary series has had any problems. I mean, you know, in terms of being relatively or perfectly flat, in terms of surface noise, in terms of distortion. I mean, they are good sounding records. And again, my sense is these aren't going to be here forever. And I, you know, maybe they'll continue these programs. I, I, I was shocked when there was a second round of Tone Poets this year because, again, given the discounts I've seen on them, I assumed they weren't selling quite as expected, that an awful lot of the purchasers of these albums have not paid. I mean, I've, I've gotten them for 26 27 bucks in record stores. And there you feel like, you know, these are marked down there. You know, that's, that's not Amazon with an enormous warehouse. That's somebody, you know, dealing records in a shoebox somewhere on a street. So I was a little surprised they came back. I was, I was thrilled they did. There's a lot of good uh, records in that second series, but a little bit shocking. So again, if you're interested in these series, um, I've got lengthy articles on the first Tone Poet series. I've got an article on the Blue Note 80th series where I give my highly opinionated thoughts about them, and you know, some of them I've contradicted myself and gone out and gotten a couple of ones I kind of made fun of or dismissed. So I guess I, I'm fooling myself there. Uh, but they are kind of hard to resist. And I got to say, you know, getting these on impulse, these five records, I thought, well, am I going to regret this? These aren't the best that Blue Note has to offer. I've enjoyed every one. So some of that may be analog magic. Some of it may just be an acceptance that, you know, medium Blue Note still pretty damn good. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, first was, in contrast to Blue Note, this organization called Craft Recordings, which seems to have access to the Prestige label, among other things, has been making their own efforts in deluxe LP issues, and these have been, I think, more problematic. They released recently a set of the Miles Davis Prestige Sessions if you don't know that old story, uh, Miles was on contract to Prestige, ready to move on to Columbia, got out of the contract by having two marathon sessions with his groundbreaking first great quintet with John Coltrane, of course, Philly Joe Jones, Paul Chambers, Red Garland. And they just had these sessions and just recorded lots of tunes. And of course, Prestige's style, if you don't know about that label, was little or no rehearsal. They did not save alternate takes. If they didn't like the take, they erased over it and just recorded a new song over it. And he tended to focus on standards and blues, the, the owner of the label, because those were the kind of songs that the musicians could play without much preparation. So there weren't many originals because, of course, you'd have to learn the original and you didn't have much time to do so the way he ran his sessions. So 
the mile sessions became collector's items and well-loved. There was a steaming, working, relaxing, I want to say cooling, I'm not sure. Four records released based on those sessions when Presti was kind of riding on the coattails of Columbia's promotion of Miles as their new signing, uh, Prestige released these into the into the market after Columbia had bought out the contract and started really putting muscle behind Miles. They're very well-loved albums. Uh, they're just kind of small club jazz sets, no audience there, but very much a live first take kind of feel. And there was one earlier session that might have just been called Miles Davis Quintet. I, I don't want to look it up right now because I'm lazy, but uh, that was a little rougher around the edges. I mean, you know, this is still John Coltrane, you know, playing with great force, but often somewhat awkwardly. You know, he's still he's still kind of an unpolished gem at this point. Still struggling with heroin as well. And of course, Miles fires him for a while. He cleans himself up, works with Thelonious Monk, then comes back. So anyway, Craft uh, Recordings has a set of these, and they just they put them all in a book in session order and add a LP of live session. So I think it's a six LP book, but I just don't see the point in putting these marathon sessions in session order when, if you're going to have five LPs that cover the five set, you know, the basically what was five LPs of material back in the day, given that those were at least programmed to make emotional sense as to work as sets, why not just re-release them in that order? Why put them in session order where the one duplicate is the theme and just placed twice in a row. That doesn't make sense. I mean, one thing to remember when you're getting vinyl is it's a linear medium. It is a terrible way to include alternate takes of things. It's a terrible way to include studio sessions that might have historic interest, but aren't something you're going to sit down and listen to on a regular basis. I mean, you want to focus on getting LPs that are of sessions you know you like, or you think you've got a good chance of liking, and things that make sense to listen to in a linear way. And they're going to stand up to some scrutiny because digital is perfect for alternate takes and historical sessions. I mean, that's, you know, that's the medium. If you want to listen to that stuff, if you want to be a historian or a music musicologist about it, get the digital. You know, it's you're not going to sit down with a glass of wine in your hand and listen to 20 to 25 minutes of three alternate takes of a tune. It's just it doesn't make any sense. It's not that's not the right medium for it. That was the frustration of LPs. Once you put the needle down, you had to get up and move it if you wanted to skip something or just listen through. It, it was linear. Not quite as linear as cassette, but it was linear. And CDs overcame that. I mean, digital just is better, you know, for that kind of thing. So I don't know why they're doing this. They're, they're also digital dubs. They are not analog dubs. They also did a box of Coltrane's 1958 sessions. And this makes a little more sense to me in that Really, Coltrane's albums, as released on Prestige, were a mishmash. They did the same thing with him they did with Miles. When he left and went on to Atlantic and then later to Impulse, he had more promotional uh, efforts behind him. He got more famous. And so Prestige had a lot of material in the vaults, and they just released it. And again, it sold, you know, it was kind of confused the market because Coltrane changed so quickly. And these were much more in the, in the traditional hard bop mode. I mean, he's playing standards, blues, ballads. You know, it's, 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 not, it's not his own compositions. It's not super innovative stuff. I think it's some of the most wonderful music he made. And it's a great reminder that he was one of the great ballad players of all time. Thank you. 
but it's not what he's best known for as an artist. And so the albums that came out on Prestige really didn't have a lot of sense to them. They kind of were patched together once Coltrane got famous from all these sessions. So I think listening to these in session order makes more sense. They are dubs from, you know, very high bit rate digital, but they are digital. They are not analog dubs. And they are in a book. So one thing Craft Recordings has done is really overpriced their products. I, I, I assume that they think middle-aged and older collectors like myself with a lot of money, are the people likely to buy this stuff? They seem to be willing to ignore the young hipster market. And <clears throat> as a result, they've, you know, sometimes they're like $30 an LP. And I'm just sorry, you should not be paying $30 for a digitally dubbed LP. I'm not sure you should be for an analog LP, but there's at least some argument there that you're getting the very best for the medium you can get, where this is basically another way to listen to a high bitrate file. And, you know, Digital or rather analog gives its own artifacts. There's a warmth to it. Some people find even with digital dubs, but the justification for that is a little harder to come by. And what they do is it's like an old 78 album. If you've ever seen those are thick cardboard sleeves uh, open at the top. And then into those, they put paper sleeves with, with plastic lining that hold the actual LPs. So it's a sleeve within a, a sleeve. <laughs> And you pull that out, and then you, you know, then you take the LP itself out, and you play it. And there's eight of these, so it's a pretty heavy box. So this one I succumbed to as the price got lower and lower and lower. And when it finally got to down to $20 a disc, I thought, well, I'll take a writer on it. And I, I, overall, I'm glad I did. You know, again, these are flat pressings. They are not noisy pressings. And you may think it's odd that I keep mentioning this, but in, in the rush to reissue things on vinyl once vinyl became popular again, there's been a lot of shoddy product, a lot of stuff that just has serious pressing problems. It's very difficult to make a decent LP. It's just, it's not easy to do it. It's, it's much more of a craft. Whereas, you know, once the techniques for printing compact discs came out, basically the only question was how well was it mastered? What's the quality of the ones and zeros on it? But producing the actual thing, not, you know, it's, it's basically it's just a, a digital file in a certain kind of format. And, you know, the format was mass produced so that it got, you could get it for a few cents, a, you know, writable one. In the consumer levels, you can imagine how cheap they were making them, you know, in, in a factory level. So, you know, I, I think I'm glad I got this. It sounds good. Again, there's not quite that startling immediacy that kind of draws me away from whatever I'm doing and kind of makes my ears perk up and, and my, my eyes focus on the speakers for a minute. And sometimes it will compel me for 10 minutes or more to stretch just to listen. And I don't know, maybe some of you are so disciplined you can do that. For me, it's it's rare where I've got the time and the energy that I feel like I, I can get away with just listening. I mean, when I do, it's great. And I enjoy it. And I do it probably more than 99% of humanity. But still, it, it's scarce. And it doesn't quite have that quality. But it's very, very well done. I think the LPs all make sense because Prestige didn't keep alternate takes. The LPs, you can listen to a side of it and it, it's maybe two songs. It might be up to four, but it's basically a, a lot of very well-played hard bop, you know, 15 to 20 minutes. And then some more comes down the pike as you flip the record over. Again, some of these sessions are really, I think, among my favorite Coltrane stuff. You know, I, I kind of mocked Donald Byrd in some other episode and I, you know, he's not, he's not overwhelmingly great. He's fine. The accompaniment is, is often Miles Davis's rhythm section of the time that, that Coltrane was familiar with playing with in Miles's group. 
There are some variants there. There's a great session with Kenny Burrell that's only let down by one kind of meandering blues. You know, it's, it's a good set of music. I wouldn't pay more than I paid for it, even with a neat book and the binder and the blue, you know. Increasingly, I think as time has gone on, I've just realized I want old LPs in decent shape that are from the analog era, and I want reissues that are analog. There's a novelty and fun to getting digital files pressed on records. I'm still happy I got the Cars box set because every piece of vinyl is a different color, and I do like that band. And you know, But there's only so much of that you can do unless you're infinitely rich and have infinitely large storage area. So personally, I'm trying to avoid it. So, you know, it's worth getting. Now, that said, just be aware of the Coltrane material and Prestige has gone through phases. There was an enormous box set of everything he did on the label, like 16 CDs, that was released many, many years ago in the early era of box sets. They later turned them into three kind of double-high, one-width books, if that makes any sense. So the books are as tall as two CDs, as deep as one CD, and probably about an inch thick each. And as volumes of him as a leader, as a co-leader, and as a sideman. And those, I think, comprise somewhere you know around the same number of discs. Maybe they squeezed a little bit more on there. Those are remastered. They sound better. That's the way I got them when they went on sale. You could find them at half price books, very cheap or whatever. They have neat books in them to read if you're still getting physical media at all. This set is yet another remastering of just the 1958 stuff. So we're not talking about the whole prestige thing, just what he did in 58. So if you want the whole spread of his sessions, you need, you know, buy it digitally, stream it, or get one of the box sets uh, from the day. I have not gone back, but I will say those those tall boxes. A fearless leader and sidesteps and whatever the third one is called sound pretty fucking good. I mean, they had startlingly good sound at the time for digital. So, you know, if you run across those, are you missing something by not getting this? Probably not. But, you know, it's it's a neat artifact. I've been enjoying them. Again, not quite the quality that I, I think it would have if it had been given an excellent analog remastering. And again, if you're, you're going to say, we're going to kidnap you, Pat. We're going to put you in a dark room. We're going to kill you if you cannot identify digitally sourced versus analog sourced albums. I'm going to say you're probably going to kill me. I, I, I don't know that I'm that good. I, I'm just, you know, again, extrapolating from known facts. There may be some confirmation bias. You know, I'm not going to hold myself up as a perfect witness here. I will just say that the, the test I've had, which is not a test that I'm consciously doing, is am I pulled out of my book? Am I pulled out of my magazine by something that just startles me with this immediacy? more often with the analog stuff, but again, that's not science. The final thing I want to talk about real briefly, it's not even really related to this podcast. I broke down and got the Leonard Bernstein collection of Beethoven symphonies on Deutsch Gramophone. Uh, apparently, it was maybe the last analog Beethoven cycle recorded. It's maybe his third shot at that uh, set of music. Sound is fantastic. I've played almost all of them now. Pressings are 
dead quiet. It is an analog production. It's, it's, it's it, you know, sometimes analog recorded classical can get pretty congested sounding because of the wide swoops and dynamics. I've not had that problem. I am not a Beethoven expert. I have probably three or four of the uh, symphony cycles, but, you know, I've, I've been listening to them off and on since I was a kid, but I've never been a classical music maven. I can't tell you if this is the best Bernstein version, where this stands, and my theory of what the best cycle is. I just, I, I'll never probably reach that point in my lifetime. I enjoy it quite a bit. It's very, very good. Uh, thanks to know about it. Uh, the, the individual LPs are in cardboard jackets, but they're the very light, fairly cheap feeling ones. The, the sequence is all pictures of Lenny as an older man. Fine. I probably would have preferred abstract art as much or just, you know, it's, it's, he's not frightening looking, but I don't know that I need that many pictures of an elderly Lenny Bernstein. Uh, also, it advertises everywhere. Oh, you can download digital copies of this. I'm sorry, the website it points to me to does not exist. It will not let me do that. I contacted Deutsche Grammophone support. I've heard nothing from them. Damn you, Germany. I don't know what's going on over there. So as far as I can tell, unless I'm missing something, you cannot, in fact, download digital versions of them. Not the end of the world for me. I've got several digital Beethoven cycles, but just a little bit annoying that they advertise it on the jackets and, and, and a download card and on, you know, and it doesn't work. So that's the bit out. But, you know, if you're looking for, and this again, I waited till the price got reasonable and it eventually is going to go out of print, but it's not there yet. If, you know, you want an all analog LP Beethoven cycle, I don't know. I thought this was pretty fucking good. I, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. And that concludes episode 195.5 of the Jazz Bastard Podcast. We promise it'll be the last special bonus episode for quite a while. We're looking forward to getting back in the groove with a couple episodes coming up on jazz recordings, as usual, and then an interview episode. As always, the podcast can be downloaded from www.jazzbastard.com, from Stitcher, from Mixcloud, from Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to stream it, Look it up on All About Jazz. You can reach us at pat at jazzbastard.com, mike at jazzbastard.com. You can look me up on Facebook, or if you like, drop me a line on All About Jazz. Tune in next time as we talk about that strange genre of jazz, cosmic music, looking at works by Pharaoh Sanders, John and Alice Coltrane, Lonnie Liston-Smith, and Brandy Younger. Until next time, take care.